going on, guys? Welcome back to the third installment, try number two of the Mets Legends cast. As always, I'm Rob Pearsall, joined by my buddies Michael Jennings and Michael Rosen. And I'm really starting to think, guys, I might have to change my name to Mike, too. I'm feeling a little bit outnumbered over here. <laughs> it's just a super common name. That's all there is to it, you know? I mean, it's already confusing. We, uh, enough with we all two got mics. some common names. <laughs> it's already confusing enough with two mics. If we make it three mics, it might be we might we might never figure anything out ever again. We have well, a, we think have about a, it. We have a great name there, Mike and Mike and Mike on Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> and since we're all using mics to record this, that would actually make it six mics. Oh, so that's a little chaotic. <laughs> so anyway. I don't know about you. I don't know about you guys. I'm feeling pretty good about the Mets. Uh, it's always good to kind of have that series victory leading into an off day. I always sleep a little bit better. My food tastes a little bit better. The sun feels a little bit brighter. Um, and yes, I, I do admit that I am sick, as I'm sure you guys are, uh, with the Mets affecting my mood as much as they do. But uh, it definitely feels good to have that to have that victory. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, I recently moved in with my girlfriend and she's, this is like, this is the first full on like Mets season she's experienced with me. And um, she's doing great with the, the ups and downs. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> at least when, I, when the Mets win. <laughs> at least she's coming into an era where there's more hope than there yeah. was for a majority of our Mets fandom. Uh, so Good she's out. lucky. She kind of coming in with a clean slate. We got Steve Cohen at the helm and, uh, things are looking good. There'll always be, uh, you know, it'll always be as messy as it gets as you've said in the past, Mike J. Um, but you know, it's, it's starting to feel a little bit more like, all right, you know, I feel a little bit more secure about where the team is going than I have in the past. Uh, as always, um, we talk about Mets Legends. And so a guy who's doing particularly well at the moment is a good buddy of ours, Stephen Matz. And uh, if I had asked you guys before this who the major league leader in wins was, would you have known that it was Stephen Matz at this point? Absolutely not. Well, <laughs> I mean, it depends on when you're asking. If you asked me this time last year, I would say no. But if you're asking me yeah. today, yes, because I've watched all starts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so Matt's is pitching pretty well. He has four starts to start the year. He has four wins, zero losses, obviously, and he's pitching to a 231 ERA. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of debate these days over the the pitcher win statistic. And yeah, I mean, it's 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 not necessarily the be all end all just like batting averages and just like saves aren't, but it's good to see Steven Matt succeeding. And um, really, I, I think that the best thing for him was to get out of New York in a way. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys feel the same way about that, but it just seems that for Steven pitching in front of his family and his friends being from Long Island um, might've put a little bit of extra pressure on him. And I'm sure he liked pitching here. You know, it's the team that, uh, you know, he grew up following and uh, debuted with, but now he's in Toronto and 
I think it was kind of nice for him to ease into the season, not having to pitch at Rogers Center. Uh, they're, they're playing at their AAA affiliate stadium. So it's kind of been a little bit of a nice easing into a new club and kind of out of that New York spotlight. Oh, yeah. I think with Steven Matz, you know, the talent was always there. You know, he would have some starts where he just was completely on his game. I remember going to a game where he was pitching against the Padres. He got within five outs of throwing a perfect game. He was just completely on his game that day. Um, I think it was really, you know, just uh, I think, like you said, the spotlight could get to him sometimes, you know, and he was someone that was, you know, emotional and was very hard on himself where like if he got off to a rough start, it was kind of tough for him uh, to reel it back in. Um, but certainly there was never any denying his talent and, you know, being in a place like Toronto where the spotlight isn't as harsh as it is in New York. So, you know, if things, if maybe things don't go quite as wrong with him, he's, um, it doesn't quite get to him as much. And, you know, just as with all of us, when you grow older, you, you know, grow some more emotional maturity, you're able to uh, handle yourself a little better. And I think, you know, we're just seeing that with him. Yeah. And I think if, you know, I think that one of the biggest things that I noticed about Matt's during his time with the Mets was that he was, you know, I feel like he was super hard on himself as I think we all are aware, you know, as soon as he would give up that first walk or, you know, didn't get the call he wanted from the umpire. He was, you know, pounding his glove, you know, kind of, you know, yelling and, or, you know, really showing that emotion, which I, I honestly love. Like I love when players do that, when they show emotion on the field, but I think part of it um, has to be, you know, it being his hometown team and him wanting to just succeed so bad that it almost mm-hmm. got in his own way. Um, and and I think there were those times when I, those really special times when he put it together that he was, you know, nearly, nearly untouchable. Um, and I think him going to Toronto can only help him get closer to that. Cause I've, I've even noticed in some of the games that I've watched of his from this season, um, you know, he's, he's given up that, that, you know, lead off walk where, you know, that would have led to a snowball inning with the Mets, but he he works around he's been working around it so far uh with the blue days and i'm just i'm happy to see that i love seeing that i i always liked him a lot and i think i, I wish him the best you know totally and i think that steven matz had a rough season last year and last season is so hard to really quantify because it was such strange circumstances for everybody we're all going through this collective pandemic which has ripple effects in your daily life and playing a sport on top of that i can imagine is even harder especially in an expedited season that didn't start until the summer the dog days of summer you're 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 in this marathon for 60 games um with playoffs included it's not a lot of time and so guys we're really thrown out of the rhythms and you're even seeing it a little bit this year where guys to start off the season, aren't going as deep into games early on. Um, The Mets certainly had that issue when they played in Chicago last week, you had Taiwan Walker only pitched three, three and two thirds. Um, You had Joey Lucchese only pitch, I think the same three and two thirds. Um, And so I I think it's part of a, a bigger, um, I wouldn't say problem, but from last year, those things are kind of carrying over. But with that being said, 
it's kind of hard to look at those numbers from last year and, and, and come to any conclusions. So yeah, Steven Matz had a bad year last year. There's no denying that, but I don't think that that was any precursor to the talent that he has. Um, it was certainly an aberration. I don't think he was nearly as bad as that, nor do I think players who pitched really good or played really good are as good as that. Um, you know, you're seeing someone like Devin Williams on the Brewers, who's having a little bit of a rough year to start off with, and he was incredible last year. So 2020 was a weird season. Steven Matz, though, like you said, Mike J, like you said, Mike R, he has the stuff, and it's really good to see him playing with it. Um, and hopefully he continues that success in Toronto because the guy deserves it. And he's, you know, he's 29 years old. He could put together a few more good seasons. Um, yeah. He, he yeah. definitely is at that age where he can still pitch in baseball and he's still kind of in that prime of his career. Well, um, not just that. I think, I think if he continues the way that he's going, there's no reason to suspect he wouldn't be in the Scion conversation at the end of the year. If he continues this, I mean, and I think he, I personally think he's always had that kind of stuff that if he could put it together for a full season, he could be in that conversation. Uh, you know, among, among now that he's in the American league, among, you know, the Garrett Coles of the world and all of that. So. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Steven Matz was a part of that five ace conversation for a reason, right? He was, you know, he was someone that the Mets had really high hopes for and, you know, it's neither here nor there, the return they got for him. I mean, they got, uh, you know, a, a trio of arms, one of which they later traded to the Kansas city Royals for Khalil Lee, the outfielder who has some good speed um, and someone who they, the Mets might even call up at some point this year, depending on how things go. But you got Sean Reed Foley who looked pretty good uh, kind of in a washout game against the Cubs last week. Um, but yeah, good for Steven Matz. And I will say though, uh, it is a little bit sad to kind of see that those 2015 and 2016 seasons uh, players from those seasons kind of dissipate a little bit. Um, obviously last week, the news came out that, uh, that Neil Walker and Jay Bruce both retired. And uh, it's kind of weird because 2016 doesn't even really feel like that long ago. And those were guys that were both part of a pretty good Mets team in 2016. So starting to feel a little bit uh, sappy about those guys retiring. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, both of them hold, you know, I would say hold a, a special place in my Mets fandom. Um, I mean, one of my, one of my absolute favorite Neil Walker moments was him trying to defend Cindergaard for throwing mm-hmm. at Chase Utley um, yeah. in that mic'd up clip with Tom Hallian. And Tom Hallian is basically just like, Neil, come on. Like, come on. <laughs> we all know what's going on here. <laughs> that's, uh, I think that's one of the, that's one of the better moments from that clip too. Kind of an underrated moment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> where Neil is kind of being that veteran, uh, veteran guy trying to be this false voice of reason. Um, and, and uh, yeah, Tom Hallian. <laughs> not having any of it he's like neil come on i'm not an idiot uh so that's a great moment and you know you know me and mike are we went to college together and um you know we were on uh we were on the newspaper together i believe when when the mets lost in 2016 in the 
the NLDS, or maybe it was a little bit before I joined our newspaper, but um, it's kind of a tough, kind of a tough moment them losing that in that series. Um, Walker, I don't even believe was on the, was on that uh, roster for the, for the wild card, because I believe he was hurt. Yeah. Um, and the Mets, uh, the, the Mets had a ton of injuries that year. And, um, you know, with Neil Walker too, you know, he was coming into a bit of a, a tough situation for a player to come into with the team, considering the fact that he was replacing, he was essentially Daniel Murphy's replacement and Murphy, yeah. who was a fan favorite, obviously had that re- insane postseason run where he was just red hot um, that he led the team to the world series. And Neil Walker has to come in and step in and take over in that role. And um, he had a great year that year, 2016. He was very, very good that year. Um, until, like you said, he he got hurt towards the end of the year. Yeah. When he started off so slowly that year, too. I mean, I remember people were all over Neil Walker saying that he was, you know, a complete waste for the Mets. Um, but you know, again, um, Terry Collins, you know, came to came to his defense to the media um, after, like, I remember after like a particularly bad loss. Terry, you know, was sitting in front of the, uh, you know, the reporters saying. You know, well, we want the guys who will go out there and, and grind out at bats. And one of the people he talked about was Neil Walker, who had started really bad. He started grinding out at bats, and he he got his his uh, his batting average up like 50 points, I think Terry Collins said. Um, and you know, it's it's moments like that where the team is like kind of down, where I feel like veterans like Neil Walker and Jay Bruce uh, kind of stepped up and showed their veteran leadership in a lot of ways, and and you know, you need those guys on any team. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, Mike R, I mean, Neil Walker is coming into a situation where Daniel Murphy just had one of the best post seasons of anybody. I mean, the guy, uh, homered off of, uh, Jake Arrieta, John Lester, Zach Greinke, Clayton Kershaw. So he, had an amazing postseason and losing him to the nationals in hindsight too, you look back at that deal and the nationals got him for a, an absolute steal. I mean, they signed him for three years. I believe it was somewhere in the $30 million range. So you look back and for the production you got out of, they got out of Daniel Murphy is insane. And there's really no reason the Mets shouldn't have, have matched that or gone above that that's not an unaffordable contract for someone who's going to give you the production that murphy did but it just goes to show how how tight money really was during the Wilpon regime um in flushing um but with that being said you make a really good point mike R, where he comes into this situation and he fills daniel murphy's holes pretty admirably i mean taking out of the equation what murphy went on to do for the nationals Walker was coming in with pretty similar career offensive numbers to Daniel Murphy. They weren't too far off. Um, You know, I'd have to look at the numbers deeper. Neil Walker might've been a little bit better defensively than Daniel Murphy. Murphy had his shortcomings in the field for sure, but at the plate you were bringing in essentially a carbon copy of Daniel Murphy, maybe a little bit different, but so he gave you that production. I mean, he really, he, filled those shoes admirably in a new, in a new city. Um, Being from Pittsburgh too, he was leaving uh, his hometown city 
where he had played his entire major league career. So, and also, I don't know how you guys felt about John Neese. He was not someone that I particularly liked very much. So when they were able to get rid of John Neese and get Neil Walker back, that trade was a win-win for me on all fronts. Yeah, I kind of liked John Neese because he was actually from pretty close to where I'm from in Ohio. <laughs> so I kind of rooted for him. Um, Lima, Ohio. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Lima is definitely in the middle of nowhere. Um, and they pronounce it Lima in Ohio. And I know that's wrong. Oh, Everyone knows that's wrong. It's wrong. It's, <laughs> it's incorrect. <laughs> like the uh, Lima bean. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But, um, but yeah, I liked... I wanted to like John Neese, but he was just so frustrating. And when they did get Walker in return, I was like, oh, okay, you know, he, yeah. he'll be fine. And when you look at the numbers he put up for the Mets, it was pretty good, especially in 2016. I mean, he hit, you know, 282, 347 on base percentage. Uh, his OPS plus was 121. Like, that's pretty mm. darn good. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, th- those are numbers you can't really argue with. No, totally. And uh, just, you know, we won't get too deep, we won't go too deep into John Neese, but it was pretty funny when they traded him. He goes to Pittsburgh and he says, "I'm happy to be here because I know that I'm actually going to have good defense behind me." Or he said he had he 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 had some jab at the Mets about their defense, and then lo and behold, the trade deadline rolls around in 2016. It's coming down to the wire, and uh, I'm watching SNY, I remember, and it was like, oh, the Mets have made one more deal. And then you, you see, like, the, they flash across the, screen, across the screen, and it says, Mets trade Antonio Bastardo to Pittsburgh for John Neese. And I'm cracking up seeing this because um, Antonio Bastardo was a pirate, and he had pretty good uh, – he had some pretty good numbers with them. So it was kind of this, like, flip of, like, all right, let's just make this right. You know, we'll take John Neese back. You take Bastardo. And, all right, we'll, we'll call it even. But Nice had to come back into that locker room and kind of backtrack on him saying that the, the team defense was bad. Um, I forgot about that. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, you know, other than Neil Walker, Jay Bruce, too. I know some Mets fans don't really love Jay Bruce. Um, I remember him getting booed, like, pretty quickly after the Mets traded for him in 2016. He had a pretty rough – second half of the season when they, when they, when they acquired him from the, from the Reds. Um, But he had an awesome 2017 before they traded him to Cleveland and really just couldn't get it back together when they re-signed him to that three-year deal in 2018. But um, Jay Bruce was someone who always seemed like a professional and um, I think really liked playing in New York. Uh, And yeah, it's kind of sad to see him, to see him go. I mean, he was only, I think he's only 34. So, uh, he's not like he's not like over the hill or anything like that, but I guess he just felt like it was time to, to hang it up. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that too because, um, you know, not to keep harp, harping on Walker, but they're the same age, just about. Um, him and him and Jay Bruce, and it, it, I want I seriously wonder if 2020 being the kind of shit show that it was. I wonder if that played any kind of factor in people who like fringe guys at this point in their careers, like Walker and Bruce, who are just fighting to, to be on a team, be on a major league roster. Um, you know, I wonder if that played into them saying, you know what, I'm going to hang it up now. 
yeah. think too with um with you know kind of the current state of affairs with everything going on in major league baseball because of the pandemic and some things not due to the pandemic but you know in terms of um lost revenue over the last year um the expiration of the collective bargaining agreement at the end of this year you know it's there's a lot of uncertainty in a lot of areas and it's never it's it's never a good time to be um you know a player past your past your prime trying to fight for a roster spot but maybe especially now with everything going on um they they just really saw like oh this is this is not a good time to be trying to trying to uh revive your career yeah yeah and and yeah further on jay bruce too i mean i think i think he did put up you know he put up pretty decent numbers for the mets despite um you know having having rough stretches for sure uh, I mean, 46 home runs over, you know, the period of time that he was with the Mets parts of, what was it, two or three seasons? Like, that's pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. And, th- I mean, that's that was his game, was hitting home runs and uh, striking out a lot. And I think people <laughs> yeah. really took except- exception to him striking out as much as he did. I mean, the Mets of the mid-2010s um, – and even still, I think, and I'm sure it's it's probably around baseball. It's not exclusive to the Mets, but players are streaky, and the Mets have had a lot of streaky players. You know, Jay Bruce wasn't the only kind of guy that was streaky. I mean, you hear the the old adage about, or I wouldn't even know if you'd call it an adage, but like that old Lucas Duda only home run only hit a home run when the Mets were like getting blown out. Which, by the way, is not really true. I did a, I did an article for Metsmerized uh, over the winter comparing Carlos Delgado and Lucas Duda um, because Mets fans really revere Carlos Delgado, but a lot of Mets fans dislike Lucas Duda. So I pick, Carlos Delgado was only a Met for a few years, and Lucas Duda was only a full-time first baseman for the Mets for a few years. So I basically took a look at like their top two seasons um, – and compared them and they had pretty similar numbers. And I also looked up Lucas Duda's numbers in like the, in like the clutch or like while the team was like ahead or just like when he homered at different points throughout games. And it wasn't like he was exclusively hitting home runs when the Mets were getting blown out. So I don't really know how that, like that, that kind of misconception be, like came to be, but. Uh, I think it's, I think it's the quality of teams, honestly. Uh, like, Carlos Delgado played for some of the best teams in recent memory for the Mets. Mm-hmm. And so therefore I think there's automatic respect gained there. Um, despite him, I, you know, striking out a ton, even for the time um, that he played in, but with mm-hmm. Lucas Duda, I don't know. I feel like as just from my own, you know, personal perspective, I kind of felt like it was like, Oh, there's, you know, it's 12 to one in the seventh inning. Uh, the Mets are losing and Lucas Duda hits a home run. Like, I don't know. That's not, that's something that wouldn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know? Yeah. So I think, and, I, I just kind of think that's where that comes from. And I think that Duda didn't, for obvious reasons. I mean, Carlos Delgado is a borderline hall of famer. Um, mm. I don't think he really deserves to be in the hall of fame, but he's a borderline hall of famer. He's someone who came over after a a really strong career in Toronto 
and uh, had that good season with Miami before that, uh, before they got him in 06. Um, Lucas Duda was kind of a guy that the Mets were putting in the outfield while yeah. Ike Davis played first base and looked kind of out of position. He wasn't a sexy prospect by any means. He wasn't the Mets' top prospect in the pipeline at any given moment. Um, Ike Davis was was more of a, a hyped-up prospect when he came up. So I just think that it's it's the way that they were perceived as well. Um, you know, Delgado having that 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 track record behind him obviously makes him be remembered in a way that might not be always correct. But um, I think it also just shows that Duda did play at a high quality himself, you know, not to take anything away from Delgado, but that yeah. that Duda also had some strong moments with the Mets as well. Um, but I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about since, since we were on the topic of the topic, I don't know what that was. <laughs> Sounded like I was British or something like that. The next topic we're going to talk about uh, <laughs> is Jay Bruce. And when he was acquired by the Mets in 2016 uh, and Mike R, I don't know if you remember this, um, or Mike J for that matter, but um, when the Mets acquired Jay Bruce in 2016 at the deadline, Brandon Nimmo was originally the centerpiece of that deal in, and as a return for Cincinnati. Um, and even if you look up Jay Bruce, or, or even if you look up Brandon Nimmo, Cincinnati Reds now, you can still find – like little articles that are like Brandon Nemo was traded to the Cincinnati Reds on Thursday in exchange for Jay Bruce and Nemo will likely slot in at left field, whatever it is. Um, I'm not really sure exactly what happened. I don't know if I remember. I think it was something with Nemo's medicals where the Reds were a little bit uh, skeptical of trading for him. Um, and so at the last minute they subbed in Dilson Herrera for Brandon Nemo. Um, and in hindsight, you look back and that was really the best case scenario, because if you traded Brandon Nemo in that deal, you lost that trade, uh, you know, now like you look back now and that, that trade is a complete loss. Um, Brandon Nemo is 27, 28 now, and he's arguably the most productive batter on the Mets at the moment, at least early on in this season. But yeah. it's not it's not an aberration because you look back at Brandon Nimmo when he really blossomed in uh, 2018, and he was one of the more productive batters on the Mets then too. He had four over four wins above replacement according to Fangraphs that year. Um, so Nimmo, this is the kind of player Nimmo is. But it, it's funny how this you look back at this what could have happened. You know the Mets zigged when they should have zagged or or these little things happened and it kind of changed the course of history forever. Um, and it yeah. just, go, it just makes me think about how many like trades that that happens with. Well, and especially, I mean, especially with Brandon Nimmo, I would say there were so many trade rumors involving Nimmo um, from the time all the way back when he was still in the minor leagues in 2015, which is when sort of the Jay Bruce talk started um, for Brandon Nimmo. Um, I mean, he's had so many nearly trades, including like Starling Marte from the Pirates. Um, and, you know, it, I feel like he's been on the block since before he came up with the Mets. And all he's done for the Mets is get on base and be a solid, uh, you know, hitter. Mm -hmm. and, and 
serviceable in center field, if not solid at this point. Um, and there's a quote in an SNY article um, and in typical Brandon Nimmo fashion, he's just like, oh yeah, I'm just trying to go up there and play baseball. Um, <laughs> and they asked him, <laughs> they asked him about the first time, uh, you know, he dealt with trade rumors. He said, I think the first time I had it, uh, it, it really helped me out. That was for Jay Bruce back in 15. It was like announced on TV that I was traded and this is how it's going down. I even asked my family before I left the hotel, do you guys want to come to Cincinnati with me? Because you guys are here in New York. How do we want that to work out? Um, and so, I mean, it goes, like the article goes on to talk about like how the Mets pivoted to Yoinus Cespedes. And then um, there's one more quote from Nimmo that is, that's just the most Nimmo-y quote. Um, he said, I'm also a very positive person and I like to take the positive outlook at it. At least people want you. Whether that's the other team or the Mets, they haven't traded me yet, so they must like me a little bit. <laughs> it is a very Brandon Nimmo quote. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. And, and of course, you know, I feel like trade talks can kind of get to some people. Um, obviously, uh, the Mets have also had a very extreme example of trade talks getting to people, including uh, Wilmer Flores, as we all are aware, of 2015. Um, part of that totally bonkers year uh, for the Mets. Um, and, you know, just, just imagining some of the outcomes of what losing Nimmo would have gotten the Mets in return. Um, honestly, the Mets really did a good job of handling the situation to not trade Brandon Nimmo for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, like they almost gave him up in 2015 and then they almost gave him up again for Jay Bruce again in 2016. But I also remember he was part of the talks for Carlos Gomez, including Wilmer Flores. Uh, and it's sort of the most famous example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if it's, I, you know, cause you, you look back, that's Sandy Alderson's first, first round pick at the helm of the Mets. That was his first mm -hmm. pick uh, ever as the Mets GM, you know, he took over in the 2010, 2011 off season. Brandon Nemo was selected in the first round of the 2010, uh, uh, in the 2011 draft. I'm sorry. Um, so Sandy saw it through completely with Nemo. This, this, this kid from a small town in, and I shouldn't say small town, but compared to New York, small town in Wyoming, and as a high schooler who didn't have a high school baseball team and it's going in the first round. And so he's been with the Mets for most of his adult life. Um, and so I don't know if it was Sandy maybe having a change of heart last minute, you know, having Nemo being floated in these rumors, but not pulling the trigger. And you look back a year prior with Carlos Gomez Nemo's name being circulated in those trades, Wilmer Flores being circulated in those trades, Zach Wheeler. These are all guys that either have been in the Mets system for a long time. You know, Wilmer Flores, an international free agent from Venezuela. Zach Wheeler, one of another one of Sandy's first accus ac accusations, acquisitions <laughs> as a Mets general manager. Uh, and so... I imagine you get attached to these guys, right? And 
Uh, I remember Zach Wheeler calling up Sandy Alderson after the Gomez trade fell through saying, I don't want to be traded. You know, I want to be here. I want to be here in New York. And so if the Mets get Gomez in 2015, they do not make it to the World Series without a doubt. They might not even make it to the playoffs that year, really at all. They, they might have fallen on their faces flat in 2015. Um, Gomez was later traded to the Astros and did not perform nearly as well as, as the Mets would have needed him to. And that's just really what it comes down to. It's a little unfair because what they got out of Jonas Cespedes is one of the best midseason acquisitions maybe well, in baseball seen, history. Who could have ever seen that coming? I mean, yeah. like he was, he, was, he was hitting in Detroit. He was, he was kind of doing the thing. But, I mean, not, not to the level that he did when he just turned it on. He just flipped a switch when he came to the Mets. Um, and yeah. it, was, it was unbelievable. So I want you guys to take me through what that night was or what those few days were like for you, really. You know, the Gomez trade falling through that awful loss to the Padres where Justin Upton hits that home run uh, after a rain delay and then them getting Cespedes. What was it like for you guys at that point in your Mets fandom? I remember I was I was actually – uh, in the middle of a tech week for this show I was doing with a community theater. Um, so I didn't get to see the Flores game live. Um, I kind of came home after my rehearsal, kind of saw everything that went down. Um, and I was, I, I think I remember thinking something along the lines of like, oh crap, well, we're not, we're, I think that was it. Like we're probably not getting anyone uh, before the deadline now. And then I did see the, the Justin Upton game in the rain live because that was during the day. Um, and I just remember going, going into – that was my last rehearsal before opening night. And I was just so depressed. Like, man, just like another one of these seasons where, like, it just – like, everything, like, just falls apart. Like, it really felt like that. It just felt like that's it. Like, the, the year's over. Um, and then the next day, like, right before I'm going heading over for opening night, I just see – or I think actually I was there at that point and I was like getting ready for my show. And I see that they uh, acquired Cespedes and I'm just like, man, I don't know how I'm going to contain my excitement on this stage tonight. Like, Oh, yeah. oh. Yeah. It, it was, yeah. yeah, it was certainly a roller coaster few days. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I kind of remember more the fallout than like sort of the, the moment by moment leading up to it. I remember I didn't watch the game where he was crying on the field. I just remember seeing like an, MLB app update that's like one of those like news headline ones it's like Wilmer Flores crying on the field it's like why the hell is Wilmer Flores crying on the field what's going on <laughs> um that's out of context <laughs> yeah exactly exactly it's like, what um but then I remember I think it was like two days after the deadline I was at Dick's Sporting Goods and I'll never forget seeing all of these you know grow, grew up in northwest ohio so tigers fandom country um there were all of these uana cespedes jerseys um clearance for like 20 bucks <laughs> wow so i bought one and gave it to my dad um and he said <laughs> he's a still bargain <laughs> yeah so he still has a uana cespedes detroit tigers jersey from two days after the the trade deadline 
Well, being a Mets fan too, I mean, it's it's not like it would, it was irrelevant to you guys. So it was super relevant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's I was I was cracking up like looking yeah. at it because everyone obviously in in that area is like sad to see Cespedes go because he was one of their only productive bats that year. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I so I remember those days really vividly actually, um, and so I it was it was July, you know, so it was. It, this was all going down during the game. You know, that, that's like, that's like another crazy aspect of it. Like, yeah, we remember Flores currently, we know it's during a game, but you think about it and you're like, this is all like, there's so much going on. Like there's a game going on. You're getting all these crazy rumors while the game is going on. It's kind of hard to concentrate. I'm hanging out with one, with one of my best friends. Uh, and I remember we were driving to GameStop uh, to pick up a PlayStation 2 controller. <laughs> we were going to play something on my PlayStation 2 that night and uh, after the Mets game. And I'm driving my car, and he has his phone on him. He goes, he goes the Mets are he's like, the Mets are about to acquire a really big bat. It doesn't say who it is yet, but I guess at that point, it was like there, it was slowly coming out that the Mets were about to acquire someone. And I was like, oh, man, I wonder who it is. I'm thinking it's Justin Upton. That was kind of a name that, that you were hearing. So I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's Justin Upton. And then, you know, we're, we're, we're continuing to drive and he goes, Carlos Gomez. And I'm like, oh, all right. Like former Met getting him back in blue and orange will be kind of a cool reunion. You know, Gomez has had a really great career since he's left the Mets. Um, and I'm like, does it say who they're getting, who they're, the Mets are trading for him? And he goes, Zach Wheeler and Wilmer Flores. And I'm like, this is a bad trade. Like, this is this is not a good. Tra- this is too much. You're giving up too much. Mm-hmm. And Wheeler was hurt then, so the, the the Brewers would have been acquiring him while he was recovering from Tommy John. Um, he was really more of the one that I was a little bit a little bit more upset about because if you remember, like this is this all happened before Wilmer became a folk hero for the Mets. Like that all happened after he didn't get traded. So. Wilmer Flores, yes, he was a top prospect in the Mets farm system, but Zach Wheeler was really the one that I was, I was bummed about both, but you know, so we get back to my house, we're watching the game, Flores is crying on the field, and Twitter is big at this point, but it's not nearly as big as it is today, so it wasn't like I was refreshing my Twitter feed a lot, I'm just watching this happen, and like everyone, I'm sure you're just like, why is Flores still in this game, like, like, the guy, like you don't ever really see guys, even if there's inklings of them getting traded in games, because you don't want them to get hurt. And you see it a lot in hockey where if guys are on the trading block, they're healthy scratches until they get traded. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was very odd. And then Sandy comes out and he's like, after the game and saying, there's no trade, there won't be a trade, the Mets aren't getting Gomez. And then like Mike R said, we're not thinking we're getting anybody at that point. Um, you know, Gomez falls through and it's almost like this tease that you, that we felt so often from the well ponds with like these false promises, like, Oh, okay. You tricked us into thinking we're getting Gomez. Now we're not getting anyone. And this is awful. And the Mets have that really awful uh, range rain delayed game that they lost uh, against the Padres. The, I think it was the next day. Um, where they're winning and then they had that rain delay and Jerry's familiar comes back out after the rain delay is kind of disrupted and lets up that home run to, to 
to Justin Upton. And that was really a low point of my Mets fandom, I think. Um, because before that, you didn't really – like, I feel like we're all around the same age. So there wasn't this, like – it wasn't – the letdown wasn't as severe because the Mets weren't competitive. But there was this, this, this buzz around the team where, like, all right, well, we just need a couple more pieces and we can – we can be good. So it was very deflating when that all happened. I actually had tickets to the Flores game on July 31st, that night, the next night. And I gave them up. And it's, it's one of the only, I think it's the only time I met fandom I ever did that. And the reason being was I was just so angry at the will bonds. I was so angry that like, that they just blew it. And so I gave the tickets up like that afternoon and I'm driving to get pizza for lunch and leading up to the deadline. And my, my friend texts me at like two 30 or 3 PM. And he goes, you guys are getting Cespedes. And I go, what? He goes, he goes, just trust me. He goes, I don't know how, I don't know what his tip was. I don't know what he read, but he goes, you guys are getting Cespedes. And I'm like, all right, whatever you say, pal. And so I, I get home. It must've coincided with four o'clock. Cause I get home, I get on my couch. I pop open my pizza box and I turn on SMY. Sure enough, the Mets traded for Cespedes. And then Flores hits that home run that night. I have the worst remorse uh, ever <laughs> for that. And so it was crazy. It was, it was really a wild time. And also, I, I don't know if you guys ever read about this, but there was this, this article that came out a couple years, a couple years later. And it was basically how, the Mets not trading Flores to the Brewers indirectly led to the Astros being caught for the, the sign stealing scandal. Yeah. So it was like, mm -hmm. it was like the Mets didn't trade Flores for Gomez. Gomez was, a, was then traded to the Astros in exchange for Mike fires and yeah. uh, whoever else was in that trade. And then fires ended up being, being the whistleblower on that Astros team. So in a weird way, the Mets not trading Flores led to this crazy cheating scandal being unearthed. Mm -hmm. I, I will say I definitely remember – I definitely watched that game that, uh, that Flores hit the home run because, I, you know, in typical Wilpon era fashion, I was like, I'm back, baby. Like, I'm <laughs> watching every game. And, um, and of course, you know, when, I remember thinking, like, when he came up, I was like – if he does something here, like this would be a pretty memorable moment, like a pretty special moment. Of course he did. And I think I almost cried when he was coming around third base and like, you know, pumping his fists and like, you know, pulling at his, at the Mets logo on his chest. I was like, Oh my God, this is just like, this is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's why I like the five days of flushing documentary so much. Um, I mean, they play it during every rain delay ever for the Mets on SNY. <laughs> yeah. So it's on quite a bit, but I still watch it every time. I'm like that was that was a pretty sick moment. Um, a big uh, a big hero, uh, a, a, a Mets legend, but also a Mets legend. I'd say at this point, who is part of that 2015 team, was Kirk Newenhuis. Mm -hmm. And uh, today was a uh, today was the anniversary of a. Uh, of a, a home run that he hit against former Mets legend, Heath Bell. Um, 
So I'm going to let Mike R take this away um, and talk a little bit about Kirk Neuenheis and back about that happening back then and also kind of his contributions to the 2015 team. Yeah, and you're you're speaking to a proud owner of a Kirk Neuenheis jersey, so I feel like I'm very qualified for. <laughs> I, I was all, I was all aboard the Kirk Neuenheis train when he came up in 2012. But yeah, some background info info on uh, Captain Kirk here. Um, in high school, he was actually a three sport athlete. He played baseball, obviously, but he also played basketball and football. Um, and he was a running back uh, in football, and that was kind of his primary sport, but he kind of felt like he maybe didn't have, wasn't big enough to like have that translate over into college. Uh, So he kind of decided to stick with baseball to the fortune of the Mets. Uh, He was drafted in the third round of the 2008 draft. Um, And as you mentioned, Rob, this was, uh, this is the nine year anniversary of his walk-off hit uh, against fellow Mets legend, Heath Bell um, of the Miami Marlins at the time. And I believe that was the same series that was Jose Reyes, his first series back in Queens um, after he had signed with the Marlins. But, you know, I think, I really think of Kirk Neuenheis as kind of like the quintessential Mets legend, just because he is an obscure baseball player. The casual baseball fan has no idea who Kirk Neuenheis is, Um, but he, he spent most of his career with the Mets and he actually had some big moments with the team. Um, that walk-off hit, like I mentioned, was the first one that came to mind. I remember, too, that rookie year, he he became the first player in City Field history to hit a home opposite field home run as a left-handed batter. Um, and that was, that was the same year that they had moved the fences in, but I believe this home run still cleared the Great Wall of Flushing. Um, and he had some big moments in that 2015 season as well. Um, he became the first player in franchise history to hit three home runs at home. He, of course, had that big home run against Papelbon in that big national series on Labor Day. Um, he actually mm-hmm. appeared – I had I looked this up and I had no memory of it, but apparently he also appe- had a few at-bats in the NLCS and World Series that year. I don't remember that at all. Um, no, but, yeah, no. I Yeah, but he, he had some big moments with the team. Um, and, you know, he retired from Major League Baseball he, a few years afterwards. He didn't stick around for long. And he did play with the Long Island Ducks, actually. Uh, for a bit in 2019 but yeah Kirk Neuenheis was uh was a guy who had some big moments with the team and you might not think of it looking at his stat sheet yeah Yeah, I think Kirk I think Kirk is someone who like you said uh very eloquently isn't really remembered um in the grand scheme of baseball and no other fan bases really have any reason to remember him um except for maybe the nationals uh when he did hit that home run, but yeah, I mean, he wasn't like, he wasn't a star. I, I, I remember, you know, you said you bought a Kirk Neuenheis jersey and you still own one. I remember when he first came up seeing some, some Kirk Neuenheis shirts and jerseys at City mm-hmm. Field. Um, Do you remember I, the the one that said like, it like tried to spell his name a bunch, <laughs> yeah. crossing it out. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. It was like his name spelled wrong like six times and they finally mm-hmm. just crossed it out and it was like Kirk and they circled it. Um, <laughs> That was a cool shirt. I always wanted that one. But yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's what made 2015 so magical um, is that you had players like Kirk Neuenheis on the team who had the, who have these, like, had these like amazing moments and everyone kind of just stepped up that year. Even like you look at someone who like probably even less Mets fans remember in Dario Alvarez, 
who was a reliever for the Mets that year. And I remember him coming on and he struck out Bryce Harper in like a huge tight situation. So I think when you have a special team like that, you get these contributions from all these different kind of players. That's really just like this homogenous thing of, of these guys working together. Um, and so, yeah, Kirk, hundred percent a quintessential Mets legend and um, someone who I don't really think many Mets fans have bad memories of him. I think that they're kind of just, they accept him for what he was and they appreciate what he did bring to the table when he was with the Mets. Yeah. And I mean, I, I remember, I, I certainly remember the the nationals home run. Um, and there, there are a few of those things that just kind of like live on in sort of collective Mets fandom memory. Um, and I think that is one of those moments was that, uh, that home run against the nationals to like, not, not necessarily, I don't know if it was necessarily in the last game to like clinch the sweep. I don't remember like where it fell, but I, I remember thinking after that, like, you know what, this team is going to, I, I think they're going to get the sweep and I think they're going to go on and, and cause some trouble for the rest of the national league and make it to the playoffs and, you know, really do something. Um, and that 2015 team was also one of those like perfect confluence of moments that to me, I mean, you guys know I'm reading that, uh, that's so many ways to lose book mm. that like the parallels between that 2015 team and pretty much every world series Mets team that there's ever been. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's just like people you never would have heard of otherwise coming together in this like perfect alignment of the stars kind of way to to provide the the fan base with just such a fun ride and Kirk was, was uh, a centerpiece of that so you are uh, you're you're enjoying the book uh as you continue to read it i imagine sounds great oh, yeah. uh definitely something i'm gonna have to pick up i love uh i love that i've actually been not books but i've been collecting met sports illustrated covers um, I want to eventually frame. Um, I kind of like the, that like quirky Mets memorabilia, but I have the one where um, it's the best infield ever. And it's like John Olrude, Robin Ventura, Edgardo Alfonso. I have the the welcome to rip city one 2006 with like that infield. And then I just picked up the Lindor one. He's on, he was on uh, the most recent sports illustrated cover too. So I'm a yeah, junkie. For the next books. Yeah. It's, it's just nice to have. It's a piece of history that you can look back on and, I think it's just something you look back on historically and you can appreciate um, being Mets legends. Uh, we do want to wish a happy birthday to both Amos Otis and Mike Scott, uh, who are celebrating their birthdays on April 26th when we are recording. So happy birthday to them. And uh, Mike, I know that you had mentioned these guys, guys that I think a lot of Mets fans forget spent some time in, in, in flushing and went on to kind of have some really good, uh, seasons after after they left New York, especially Mike Scott in '86 against them in the playoffs. Oh yeah, I think that's the thing is that you mentioned Mike Scott to Mets fans, and they a lot of them might only remember him for that uh, crazy series against them in the '86 NLCS when he he became the first um, player to win NLCS MVP for the losing team. Jeffrey Leonard of the Giants joined him the next year, but he was the first one. Um, but he actually, yeah, he was drafted by the Mets and he began his career with the Mets. He was drafted in the second round of the 76 draft. Um, he spent his first four seasons with the team. Wasn't particularly good in 
any of them. Uh, his highest ERA plus in any of those years was 90. Um, so he certainly struggled with them there. Uh, was traded for Danny Heath, um, who was a big piece of the Mets bench on that 86 season. Uh, was traded for Danny Heath after the 1982 season. Um, and I was, I was interested to see this too, that, um, that legendary split change of his that, you know, he was scuffing the ball for that just was unhittable um, for any of those 86 Mets. He actually learned that from original Met Roger Craig, fellow Mets legend, mm -hmm. um, during the 1985 season. Um, so kind of a, just a web of Met legend collections there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he, he, was, he was very, very good with Houston outside of that 86 season. I mean, that was certainly his biggest one, his best one when he won the Cy Young Award. But he made a few other All-Star teams after that, too. Um, and yeah, just, you know, one of those guys that, uh, comes up with the Mets, struggles with the Mets, goes elsewhere and performs well. We've seen that countless times. Yeah. And I kind of had this idea for a piece I want to do for Metsmerize, the site that I write for, because as we talk about at the beginning of our podcast, pretty much every week, these guys that are, that are performing well for other teams, um, and yeah, it's, I don't think it's a new phenomenon. You know, the Mets have kind of had this, and I think a lot of teams go through it too, where guys don't stick with them and they end up sticking elsewhere. But I feel like right now in baseball, there are a lot of guys that were developed by the Mets in the last 10 years that are having really good seasons or are really helping other teams out. But the Mets kind of cut loose or they didn't really give a fair chance to. And you know, we've talked about it a little bit in, in other episodes, but – Rafael Montero is closing games out for the Mariners. Chris Flexen's over there too, and he's pitching really well for them. Phil Evans has kind of cooled off a little bit for the for the Pirates, but he's still someone who is a major league caliber player. Darno has developed into one of the better catchers in baseball. Kevin Plowecki still has a job as a backup. So I think it's a little bit of a feather in the cap for the Mets because they they they're drafting well. I mean, there's there's no denying that. And when you go back and look at some of those nineties drafts, like we talked about um, in previous podcasts and even some of the early two thousands drafts, the Mets didn't draft. Well, you look back at some of those, those drafts and they're absolute stinkers. I really implore you guys at home to look up the 2000 Mets draft and try to find any positives in it. Cause there are zero, there are zero. <laughs> and so uh, it's kind of nice that the Mets are developing these, these better players now. Uh, at this point in, in their franchise. However, I would like to see them uh, hold on to some of these guys a little bit more. I think Chris Flexen is, is a prime example of that, of a guy that really didn't get a chance, didn't really get a fair shake at the, at the major league level um, with the Mets. And now he's, he's with the Mariners. He's pitching really well. Yeah. I mean, I'm still, I'm still clenching thinking about what Jared Kalanick is going to do in the major league. Oh, yeah, man. Oh. <laughs> It makes at the least, Edwin Diaz. Least, oh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, you know, at least we'll probably wait another year because of, um, you know, service time manipulation and all that uh, being very much out in the open with the Mariners right now. But yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just, I'm just afraid of what he's going to do. I think he's going to. Yeah, I, I think so too. Go ahead, Mike, uh, Mike R. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, you know, I think it's kind of uh, to just, circling back here like it, it isn't even like a recent it, it, it definitely is a very we've had a lot of instances recently but there's certainly just throughout the course of Mets history have been plenty like we just mentioned Mike Scott Amos Otis like 
who you, who is also his birthday today, um, was a really good five tool player with the Royals, even though he came up with the Mets, wasn't very good with them. Uh, it's, and we've mentioned him on, on an earlier podcast too. Nolan Ryan is certainly someone that comes to mind. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's, I don't know what it is about the Mets, but they, they, there's, that certainly seems to be the case with them where they draft well. Um, and they, and the players they get just kind of do, do some very good things in the major leagues, just not with them. Yeah. Hopefully that trend will kind of shift a little bit with this ownership. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know about you guys. I don't, I don't really love the Mets bench right now. I, I don't think the Mets bench is particularly great right now. I don't, I don't, I'm not too crazy about Kevin Pillar. Um, I think him and Albert Almora could kind of be consolidated into one human being. And that would be, that would suffice. Um, Jonathan VR reminds me way too much of Jordani Valdez being at the plate. I'd really like to like compare their batting stances. Every time he's up at the dish, it's like, it has that the same kind of energy as when yeah. it's like Valdespin and like Luis Castillo combined into one. And it, mm-hmm. just that alone is, is cursed beyond belief. Yeah. That's enough um, to drive anybody crazy. <laughs> I, I hadn't noticed until you, you just said that. And now I'm never going to be able to unsee it. So thank you for yeah. Jonathan VR. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully the results will be a little bit better, but I'd like to see them improve the bench a little bit, but hopefully with this regime, what I was getting at was just that hopefully they could be a little bit more careful and they could, they could, and I think they were really with, with, with Sandy and then Brody kind of came in and disrupted everything and, you know, is responsible for flex and leaving and Montero and, and Darno and all that. But, um, you know, hopefully we can salvage some of those guys so they don't, we don't have that, that, that remorse after the fact. Um, I think that about wraps up our time though. We're approaching our limit. Um, I'm Rob Pearsall. As always, joined by Mike Jennings and Mike Rosen. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. And tune in to next week's episode, where I'm sure we'll be talking about some other ridiculous Mets history, players, coaches, Phil Regan the Vulture, Brody throwing a chair at him. <laughs> Anything you can imagine, we'll be talking about it. We'll catch you guys next time. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Mets Legends. And for our podcast and everything about that, at Mets Legends cast. Thank you guys, and we'll see you next time. Can't wait.